Hey everybody, welcome to the 10 to 12 podcast, the official podcast of Teamsters Local 1150. I'm Stephen French. I'm Vinny Kaitzi. And I'm Jason Shoemaker. So if you listen to the 10 to 12 podcast at all, you know that pretty much our favorite subject to talk about is this organizing wave that's currently sweeping across the country at places like Amazon, Starbucks, even Trader Joe's, countless other places. Uh, So today we're going to kind of take a closer look at what organizing really looks like, dig a little deeper into the process um, that you don't read about in the news, right? So a deep dive into that organizing process. Uh, But first, let's take a dive into our contract. Last episode, I mentioned certain circumstances where personal time can be used without resetting perfect attendance. And one way to do this is by using carryover personal time from the previous year. Uh, Language for this can be found on page 35 of the contract, and it's section 7.35, part F. This section allows employees to carry forward up to 16 hours of personal leave that remains unused at the end of the personal leave eligibility year into the next calendar year. An employee does not qualify for carryover personal leave if they've been absent for five or more disqualifying days during the calendar year. This would exclude jury duty, military leave, bereavement leave, authorized family leave, and union business. So if you took one of the days off for that, you're totally fine. Unused personal leave can be carried forward only to the next calendar year and can be taken in one-hour increments. If you fail to use that personal leave in the succeeding calendar year, you cannot carry forward the time again. Uh, When you check your entitlements, carryover personal time would be listed under the code COP. The other way that you could use personal leave without affecting perfect attendance is by using uh, what people commonly refer to as bank points personal time. This is tied to bank points, so I want to make sure everybody understands what bank points are and how you earn them. And this is covered by Article 14 of our contract, which you can find on page 61. So in order to reward employees for good attendance, employees can earn negative points credited towards their attendance record, which is called bank points. Bank points are assessed twice per year for the periods of January 1st through June 30th and July 1st through December 31st. To earn bank points, you must start the semi-annual period with zero points and maintain perfect attendance the entire time. That means you cannot be charged points during the entire six-month period. An employee who meets these criteria will bank eight points following each semi-annual period, and you can bank a maximum of up to 32 points. Now that everybody understands how bank points work, we can tie back into how you can use personal time without being disqualified for perfect attendance. So our contract states that an employee who has at least four banked points as of January 1st of each year shall be allowed to use some of their personal time without being disqualified for perfect attendance. This does not entitle an employee to more personal time. It simply converts some of your regular personal time to bank points personal time so it does not reset your perfect attendance. Here's how to tell how much bank points personal you will earn. If on January 1st you have four bank points, you'd be entitled to take off one half of a bank points personal day or four hours. If you have eight bank points, you'd be entitled to take off one full day of bank points personal time without resetting your your perfect attendance. If you have 12 bank points, you'd be entitled to take off one and a half days of bank points personal time without resetting your perfect attendance. And this is capped at 16 hours, which you'd earn by having 16 bank points as of January 1st. As I said earlier, this does not give you additional personal time. It only changes a portion of your personal leave to a different code so that it would not reset your perfect attendance. If you rate for 16 hours of bank points personal, you'll see 16 hours of bank points personal code and the remaining 24 hours under your regular personal time code. 
whatever you qualify for as bank points personal is effectively transferred from your regular personal time category to your bank points personal category. Lastly, we would have what's called bank points days, which allows employees to take time off without resetting perfect attendance as well. Our contract states that an employee who has at least eight banked points as of January 1st of each year shall be allowed to take off bank point days in accordance with the following schedule. Eight banked points equals one bank points day. 16 bank points equals two bank point days. 24 would be three bank point days and 32 bank points would equal four bank point days. Bank point days can only be used in full day increments. They could be used to cover a partial day absence, but you'd be charged for the full day. And lastly, it's important to note that when you take a bank points day or a bank points personal, it would lower your bank as well. That's good stuff. Um, I know that this is confusing for a lot of people out there. Um, it might still be a little bit confusing for you. We talk about it because we're pretty intimately uh, knowledgeable about it. We've been dealing with it for years. If you still don't understand it, drop us a line at comms at teamsters1150.org. We'll try to further explain it or just um, go and talk with your shop steward and, and they can probably help you um, figure that out. But um, it's important for us to understand that kind of thing because these are entitlements, right? And, and, and it gives us that extra time off that we're sometimes looking for. All right, so let's get into the discussion. Um, when we talk about organizing on this show, we talk mostly about who won a union vote and what dirty tactics employers are using to, to push back against the union. And we'll touch on that stuff today, but there's so much more to organizing than meets the eye. It's a difficult, long, and, and sometimes very frustrating process. That's what we're talking about today. We're getting into the weeds of organizing. And to help us do that today, we have a guest. He's Chris Hutchinson. Um, welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Hutch, right? Yes. Yeah, so we're going to call him Hutch. Yep. So, so you're a Sikorsky Aircraft employee, member of Local 1150 today, right? Um, where do you currently work? Uh, I'm in the machine shop, uh, second shift, uh, milling department. Okay. Uh, how'd you learn how to run a machine? I, uh, I went to the Housatonic Community College uh, manufacturing program. Cool. Uh, cut my teeth there. Awesome. And, uh, you know, during COVID and uh, then started applying to, to shops. So lo how long have you been around here at Local 1150? A year and two months now. A year and two months. I feel like you've been here for like <laughs> 10. <laughs> it feels like that. It, it really feels yeah. like that. We're, we're so used Season to seeing to you around. Um, <laughs> for, for those listening, um, Hutch is what we i think would still consider a new member but um incredibly active right a really active union yeah. guy uh he he's his face is really familiar to all of us around here he's at every meeting almost always has something to say at a meeting so um hutch is i think you know hopefully the future of this union so he's also got a lot of experience with the subject that we're talking about today um, so you had some previous union experience. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I actually, my first union job was at UPS, uh, Teamsters Local 671 in Hartford with uh, brother Dave Lucas. Oh, cool. Um, I didn't know that about you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was my first, I worked there for a few years and then, uh, then I was a postal worker with the postal workers union and wow. then, uh, and then went over, uh, to the hotels and organized a, a union there and, uh, you know, local 217 Unite here. So how did you come to be this guy who clearly sought out union work? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think unions are incredibly important. I I looked around and I and I was older too. I was 30 when I first got got my first union job. Um, I'm 39 now, so almost for about, about 10 years I've been working in union jobs. And all the jobs I'd worked at previously um, were non-union, and I didn't have any protections. The wages were really low, and I looked around and I said, oh, the union jobs actually, you know, the health care benefits, for example, at UPS were incredible, and I needed good health care. And, uh, and so I made a beeline for it. So, so this wasn't, there's nobody in your life that said, hey, Chris, you got to get a union job. This was you. This was an evolution of Chris Hutchinson saying unions are the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I was uh, living in Rhode Island when I was like 19 and was walking around Providence, Rhode Island, and I saw some workers on a picket line outside of a hotel, and I just ran up and joined the picket line. And that was kind of my first union. It was my instinct just to just That's to run up there. Awesome. Yeah. And awesome. Uh, and that was my first, you know, time being conscious of of, of unions. And you know, uh, it took me a little while to move in that direction actually to be a, a union member, but um, eventually I got there. You know, that's, and that's really unusual, right? Most people just don't get it, right? Certainly don't get it on their own. They have to be, it has to be explained to them. Uh, I mean, I'll just tell you a quick story that you reminded me of. Um, I was an adult going to a concert in New Haven with my two brothers who, who know that I'm a union guy, right? They're white collar guys. I'm a union guy. We go to this concert at, at the time it was the, the Palace Theater in New Haven. And we turn the corner where the theater is and there's a picket line in front of the theater cool and i walked up i said what's going on it was the stagehands union right and they were on strike and i looked at my brothers and i was like well guys i'll see you tomorrow i'm going home i'm not going in and and i had to explain to them why that was like they didn't understand why i wouldn't cross that picket line and but we have tickets (laughs) <laughs> I know we do. So um, so kudos to you for, at a young age, understanding that and understanding that that was a cool thing, right? Yeah, Not yeah. a scary thing. Yeah, I've always, uh, you know, leaned towards the side of uh, fighting for economic and social justice and, you know, seeing workers that were just asking for a, a better wage and good health care, you know, just to me seemed like a no-brainer. Yep. It is a no-brainer. It is. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. So you worked at the Sheraton Hotel in Stanford. How long did you work there? Well, I started there in 2017, and um, you know there was no union at that time; uh, wages were low. Um, but yeah, t- 2017, I, I started working there. Uh, so, what else did you experience prior to the organizing drive there? Oh man, well, it wasn't just in our hotel, but we were very keen. Like hotel workers in Stanford, all like kind of knew each other, went out with each other, and so we were aware of like. The conditions in all of the hotels and so i started there um in 2017 making 13 dollars an hour as a front desk agent oh wow with uh benefits that were uh really expensive and you know so my my take-home pay at the end of the day was terrible and by the end of the week you know you're not taking home any you know good any good money you're working crazy hours with no set schedule yep. And it was just, it was miserable. Um, you know, there was in other hotels in the Hilton, which was organized before the Sheridan in Stanford, there was cases where housekeepers were taking home negative paychecks. They would have at the end of a week, their paycheck would say negative $75. After a 40 hour work week, 
um, they would owe the company money because of the cost of, of health care. And they were only making like $10 an hour. That's Holy insane. That was mackerel. before the union. I've never heard of such a thing. It was wild. I, that I, is I, wild. So I have heard of that, but, you know, in black and white movies <laughs> where they're talking about, you know, mining companies in the 1800s. I, I've never heard of such a thing in 2007. Yeah. No, 2017. Uh, oh, my it, God. Yeah. Um, it was wild because and, and it's right. It's a mostly immigrant workforce from Haiti, from Colombia um, and people who are working like three full time jobs and coming. They, they were only working the jobs so they could have the health care and paying, you know, and making having a negative paycheck at the end of the week. It, I, I had never heard of it either. I was shocked to actually see it. And I mean, my paycheck was low, but it wasn't negative. Yeah, right. I mean, stuff like that is the reason why I want to be in this fight because yeah. that nobody should have to be subjected to that. Of course. So $13 an hour in 2017. Yes. And just so everybody understands, I started at Sikorsky Aircraft in 1987, making 1338 an hour. Wow. So 30 years 30. before you were making $13 an hour, I was making $13 an hour in a union job. Wow. That's insane. That is insane. So, so was that the final straw or what finally, you know, tipped the scales and led to the organizing drive over there? Well, there was already so the Hyatt Hotel in Greenwich had already been organized a couple of years prior to that. So I think 2015 or 2016 they they won their union. And they knew what was going on in all the other hotels. I mean, Stanford is right, one of the wealthiest areas of the state. Yeah. Um, it's one of the most expensive places to live in. And uh, you have a, you know, a bunch of workers who are just getting trampled by these, you know, big corporate entities that come in that don't care at all about, you know, what, what we were going through. And the workers at the, the Hyatt saw this. They were uh, organized with uh, Local 217 Unite here, which is also the same union that organizes our cafeteria. Yep. Um, so very, you know, I feel very at home at <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sikorsky. Um, so they saw what was going on, and they worked with the organizers from 217, and they made a plan to organize the entire city. And they did it with – they realized the strength was having the workers who were – uh, on the shop floor who were working in the in the hotels do the, the majority of the organizing. So they kind of put out feelers to workers because we all know each other, right? I said we all like yeah. kind of float around and, and, and know each other. And they put out feelers to workers in the other hotels and they found people who were interested. And um, the Hilton was really hot. They, they organized right away uh, short, shortly after, you know, people got in contact with some of the workers. And um, yeah, we can get more more into that. But, it, you know, that's kind of how the basis of it. So how do you, how does that process work? Take us through that process. What does the beginning of the drive look like? Yeah, um, it's an incredible process, um, especially if it's if it's done right. And I think we did a lot of things right. You know, we did did some stuff wrong, but the majority of it was right because we we won two union hotel votes in two in three years, mm. um, and brought you know three hundred about three hundred workers in, into the union. Um, but the process basically started with finding some leaders in each of the hotels uh, and talking with them, forming a committee in secret. Because as soon as the bosses find out, there's going to be an anti-union yeah. campaign. Sure. Yep. And we could talk more about that. But we organized basically in secret. We formed committees in each of our hotels. And they ended up being about – there's about 125, 100, between 125, 150 workers in each hotel. And we formed committees in each hotel. 
and we began to uh, based off of leaders from each department. And when we had when we felt like we had enough of the hotel covered, meaning uh, one leader, you know, has like five people in their department that they lead. Another person has six in their department. And when we felt we had a large percentage, you know, 80 percent of the shop covered, uh, then we kind of advanced our, our, our organizing. But it really started with getting a tight committee of leaders in the shop. Um, to commit to the organizing drive, which meant we were going every day after work. We'd get off our shift and we'd go to the union hall and we'd go out and do house visits, um, you know, bring workers in to talk to them and, and try to get them into the com- the committee, the leaders. And that was a real struggle because not everybody wanted to go through the process because they know that it's not it's not easy. There's yep. risk involved. Yep. yep. And and so we had a you know day in and day out have these conversations with our coworkers, um, and it was based off of the strength because because the Hyatt workers had organized and they had gotten all these benefits and a, and a good contract, you know when they came to us it was like again a no brainer like okay yes we want what you have we want to go in that direction yep. and then if we're all organized if the union density in the in Stanford is higher then we can all rise together and not yep. just be you know, making $13 an hour or, or bring home negative paychecks. Yep. So did it feel like you, you had a good handle on the workforce pretty quickly? Um, it, so what I'm asking is, were most people in favor of this? Uh, in the end, uh, the majority, the vast majority were in favor of it, yeah. but it took a long time. It was, you know, when I started working, it was about six months. They had already done a lot of organizing prior to when I started working. So in the Hilton, it took about six months after I got hired. And I I got involved very quickly as soon as I saw what was going on. And um, it took about six months. But then my my hotel, so by the time, you know, we had started, it took about a year and a half of organizing the committee, train like training all of us to, to withstand the company's attacks and they were they were very brutal in terms of the anti-union campaign uh, but we we really trained ourselves to be able to speak the truth to our coworkers and counter all of the company's tricks yeah and and this is what I think people listening don't understand right which is why we wanted to do this Absolutely, episode exactly. because we talk like I said a lot on this podcast about organizing but we simply say hey Trader Joe's want to vote yeah. or hey Amazon want to vote um, and we don't talk about what you're talking about which is that year two-year yeah. process of knocking on doors of spending you know 16 hour days after you've already worked going and maybe intruding on your co-workers homes to explain to them why they need the union and you know something I wanted to say is that the people that came before us at Sikorsky Aircraft went through this. We didn't have to go through this. Yep. A lot of us working at Sikorsky now, when they got hired, the union was there. But our uh, the people that came before us had this struggle. And I hope, you know, my hope is that we never have to have this struggle. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah. When I walked into Sikorsky and I saw the contract and everything, I, my eyes like lit up because, you know, I think it gets easy to take things for granted uh, when it's when it's in place, when it's, you know, when you've had it for, for a long time. But to see, you know, the, the benefits that exist here, um, are just, it's, it's incredible or, or just the respect that the union has on the shop floor yeah. uh, in terms of management yeah. relationship, it's it's pretty incredible. And it, it's a testament to what Vinny was just talking about was the years of struggle that went into to create yeah. that, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I think that has been a struggle, right? And, and I'm glad you brought that up, Hutch, because I think it is unique at Sikorsky Aircraft. I think Local 1150 has 
has a unique position with this company. Yeah. I don't think most companies respect their unions the way that Sikorsky Aircraft does. And and I don't think that's a testament yeah. to Sikorsky Aircraft. I think that's a testament to Local yes. 1150 and the work that we've done to be a partner yes. in the business and prove to the business that we're in this not just for our workers, but to help the company as well, right? It's a partnership if it's done right. Yeah. And but I, that's hard to do. And the respect came from a demand. For sure. Yes. yes. For sure. We walked the streets in 2006 yeah, exactly. to, to make sure that we had that respect. I think the real thanks goes to the members because that's what gives us the strength to be able to do that, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that's exactly right. And that really speaks to, you know, the process that we went through. I mean, you know, you'd go on the doors after work and, you know, you're always nervous going up to someone's door for the reasons that you said, like, are they going to support it? Are they going to tell us yeah. to get get the heck out? Or, yep. And, um, you know, the first door that I knocked on was um, this guy named Michael. And we walked downstairs and his uncle happened to be there. He was from I think he was from Ghana, I want to say. And we had a, a, this long discussion and I was I was new. I didn't really know how to, you know, talk. You know, I didn't have my wrap down. It was just a, you know, coming from the front desk and yep. saying, "Hey, let's let's do yeah. this." And um, by the end of the conversation, he was really supportive. And his uncle was a, a preacher. He, he led us all in prayer, and you know, said, "You know, God, God bless the union, and you know, oh, oh, God for for victory." And it was it was an incredible moment. That's uh, awesome to to have that be my first experience on the door, and that really gave me the confidence to go forward. That. I knew that what we were bringing people that when we were going to the doors, we had something, we had an idea that was going to bring people a better quality of life and in a way that they could fight to, to better their own existence. And yep. if they were convinced of it, then we, we really had something. So That's really, awesome. you just yeah. kind of broke it down into manageable steps, right? Because it's not this monumental task when you think about it. It's just about showing people, you know, the, the way to get things done and the way to get better benefits and wages. Absolutely. And and at all the at all times we stress the fact that it's not someone coming from outside. The union's not a third party coming in to dictate and tell you what to do. You are the union. We are the union. We are the ones who are driving this forward. And um, and, and that's the message that we kept uh, bringing to those. And it, it was real because who was coming to their doors? It was Lupe from the Hilton. It was, you know, a leader at the Hilton. It was Donald from the Hyatt. It was um, it was all these workers who had who'd been known for years uh, and had years of experience. Uh, you know, yeah. in the hotels. That's a really yeah. important message, right? To to understand that the union is the workers and it's yeah. not a third party. Exactly. And, and, and how you organize is important as well, because to your point, if Joe Schmo, the head of local whatever, showed up in a suit and tie at somebody's front door, it's a completely different yeah. message than when you show up. Exactly. Right? So that's important. How quickly did the company find out? It took a while. It, so we were so good at keeping it quiet. When we got a leader and we had our committee of leaders, the first thing we tell people is just be quiet. Do not talk in the shop about this at all. Yeah. Um, the stakes were, were very high. There, there had been previous union attempts in the hotels uh, 15 years earlier, and they failed mm. uh, because they didn't do this level of organizing. They just got people to sign cards and, you know, it just wasn't this significant of a level of organizing. And so... Um, so basically after we recruited the committee and we were sure that we had 80% of the hotel covered in terms of the 80% of the hotel followed the leaders and would listen to what, you know, the leaders had to say in terms of telling the truth when the company started lying, then we went public. Mm -hmm. And so we did a blitz basically over a weekend period where from, 
uh, Friday to Monday, we signed up everybody on cards. We, we brought them into the union hall. We gave uh, everybody union buttons. And on Monday, when we had signed up 80%, when we were sure we had 80% of the, the shop at least signed up on cards, we marched with like 100 people, uh, coworkers, union supporters, uh, people from the labor movement. We marched into the, um, the front desk and we talked to the general manager and we delivered our demand to, to join the union. And that was a really powerful moment. Uh, to have, uh, I, 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 <laughs> I, got, I got goosebumps yeah, when you said so. that. That's really cool. Uh, and, um, and you know, it was a powerful moment, and it was just for everybody to see each other, you know, going in together, and it, it was amazing. I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps. Too. I can't describe. Like, <laughs> and, and, and it sounds like something that I would have loved to be part of. Absolutely. But it's amazing to me listening to you that. So correct me if I'm wrong. Never at any point did one of the dissenters go to management and say, hey, this is happening. They may have towards the end because we noticed. uh, I mean, so when our hotel organized, they knew there was an organizing drive going on because we we talked to the other workers at the other hotels and they said, oh, the managers are from all the hotels are meeting at our hotel. They would tell give us information. They said they're meeting at our hotel. So they knew that something was up, but they didn't know exactly when or where. Yeah. And how. And so um, towards the end, we we noticed a couple days before we went public, there was these people who came in that we recognized from the previous uh, campaign at the Hilton who were uh, union busters, who were union, you know, anti-union consultants. And they, they brought in the same people because one woman, uh, Wildeen Pierre, spoke Haitian, uh, another um spoke Spanish and they brought in, you know, we saw these people coming in we recognized them because, you know, we had seen them from the other campaign. And so we saw them come into our hotel. So we, right at the end, we knew that they knew something was up, but we had already built our committee. We had already strengthened our, our people. We were, we were ready to go and we were ready to confront them at that, at that time. So you're a foot soldier essentially, right? In, in this campaign. Yeah, we yeah part of a volunteer organizing committee. Yeah. Yeah. So a year and a half, am I right? A year and a half in, you have cards signed. Yes, yeah, the, and the, all the cards were signed within a four day period. That's awesome. Because um, wow. building the committee was essential to making sure that we could get that level of cards signed in a four day period. Yep. So so you're a year and a half in. You, you get all these cards signed. You go public. Um, you hand over your demands to the company. Um, now what? Now the anti-union campaign yeah. starts, yes. right? And a hotel is a special place because the anti-union, the, we'll call them the union busters because that's a, a better term, more sure. accurate. Uh, they could live in the hotels. So 24 hours a day, there were union busters in the hotels talking with our coworkers. Wow. And from 9 a.m. until 3 a.m., there were anti-union meetings every single day. And the government was so nice to give them four weeks to be able to try to turn us around. Wow. wow. Well, so they lived there for four weeks. Yes. And this was, uh, I'll name them. So if any workers out there are listening to this, they, you know, they'll, they'll know who they are. Cruz and Associates. It was the same uh, anti-union company that Trump used for his hotels. Uh, and they're one of the best in, in the business. Wow. So this was an outside organization. They brought him in to try to break the union. 
Yes, and the whole narrative was, oh, we're just uh, giving you the facts uh, about the union. We're just, you know, the company wants us to make sure that you're you're well informed. And they had it was the same company that had done the anti-union campaign at the Hilton, so they had time to prepare. They learned because at the Hilton they got walloped. Every single union meeting or anti-union meeting at the Hilton by leaders, uh, you know, like Lupe or Inez, were sh- um, were shut down. Every single one, like they'd come, the anti-union person would come in and the workers would just all walk out and they learned from that. But we, we did too. And we, we really gained uh, experience from, from what they did and, and were, it was really incredible. So So they've banned captive audience in Connecticut now, but back then, did they try to discipline them? Uh, no, they didn't um, because everybody did it, right? So wow. there was no yeah. – they couldn't dis- discipline them. And also I actually um, – I spoke at two of the legislature meetings uh, about the captive audiences because what we went through at the Sheridan um, was even worse than what they had gone through at the Hill. And it was one of the worst uh, probably in Connecticut in terms of anti-union campaigns um, for, for how much they were in our face. Like one of my coworkers uh, who, was, um, who was diabetic, Arturo – he was in the meeting for so long and he was so stressed out by it that he almost went into a diabetic coma. Um, his oh. like blood pressure rose so high. It was, you know, people were getting physically sick from being in these meetings. And, and it starts out with like, oh, you know, here are the rules from the NLRB. Uh, we just want you to look at them. And they would cherry pick, you know, specific lines that say, oh, you know, you may get fired if you don't pay your union dues. Or, you know, they, they had this whole litany of, of tricks that they used. And it was the same tricks that they used at, on all the other campaigns. It's like a classic. They're going to close the hotel. The, uh, the union is a third party. Um, yeah. you know, the, somebody, a union boss from New York is going to tell you what to do, all, all these sort of things. Um, but like I said, we had trained our committee to counter each and every one of, of these lies and the Hilton, their union vote was 105 to five. They, they won. Wow. They, they wiped the floor with them. Um, ours was a, a lot more difficult. Hmm. So, so I want you to talk a little bit more about these captive audience meetings yeah. because, um, we talk a yeah. lot about them and, but, but only in the sense of referring to them and, and, and talking about the fact that they're a tactic, but, but I want to get inside one. So tell us about that. What is What does a captive audience look like? Well, they bring you in. T- so first of all, they're chatting with you informally throughout the day. Some of them would even go to church with people. Like it was really insidious, like the level that they tried to get into our, our lives. And not only are they doing captive audience meetings with the workers, but they're also doing them with management because they would, you know, we, we know the managers. We're, we weren't like opposed to the managers. We were opposed to the policies of the company. And so they would then try to turn the managers to be really nasty towards us saying like, this is a referendum on your ability to manage this hotel. Um, basically oh, implying a threat like they were going to get fired if things went bad for them. And, and yep. often they did. The general managers in all the hotels were fired after wow, the union drives. crazy. Um, and so it's a very deep lo- psychological level that these captive audience meetings happen on. And with the workers, you would be working your shift. They'd say, okay, uh, you know, Hutch, you got to go to a captive audience meeting. And sometimes it would be one-on-one. 
Sometimes it would be with a couple people. Sometimes it would be a big group. And when you're in there, they start out being like re- really nice and they, they know they have four weeks. So they, they plot it out and they get more and more anti-union as they go. So at first it's just like, oh, we just want to tell you the rules of the NLRB and what your, right, what your rights are as a worker. Um, and then the next meeting, they'll say they'll cherry pick parts of like the unions. Con- they brought in the union constitution and they put it on there and they say, oh, if you don't pay your dues, the union is going to get you fired from your job, which was not true at all. Right. Um, and then at the end, they're saying like some pl- sometimes they're even making deals. They're like, oh, you have medical debt. Like maybe we can help take care of that. Right. It's like it, it could get, you know, we had one coworker who had like $10,000 in medical debt and they literally offered to pay his medical debt if he. Oh, my God. That's got to be illegal. It, it is illegal. Yeah. <laughs> How many years of union dues is that? Yeah. <laughs> they do. They do so much illegal stuff that goes that gets brushed under the table because we don't have the time. We're, we're just trying to stay alive and like, get, you know, get to the election. Uh, so you don't have time to like address every illegal thing that happens because there's so much of it. Um, it's just a really tense moment. And we knew that, right? Like we were prepared. We spent months preparing for this. And so because our drive was so difficult, we said we can't just keep pounding the company. Like we would go in every day and do an action, right? We would march up to the general manager with 30 or 40 coworkers and we'd present our demands and, and workers would be prepared ahead of time. We'd say, okay, these three people are going to talk and they're going to say why we need these things. And every day we'd be going up to the managers and doing this. Um, But that creates so much tension in there and people were getting so stressed out. We said, we got to also do things that are fun and like live in the mood. So for example... I dressed up as Santa Claus <laughs> over Christmas and I brought in presents that were wrapped, uh, you know, and in the presents they'd have the, the, our demands and like uh, some candy or something. And we decorated the, the, um, you know, there was all the anti-union posters all over our break room. So we decorated it with a Christmas tree and uh, put union buttons on it and everybody opened the presents. And we did stuff like that uh, on a regular basis. We had someone dress up as a, as a Turkey on Thanksgiving and we, we marched up to the, the managers and we put the a Turkey, a frozen Turkey down. And we said, look, in the past, we got turkeys on Thanksgiving and you guys stopped doing that. We want that again. And, uh, you know, and they're like, oh, OK, we'll, we'll we'll give you guys turkeys. And I was like, oh, good. A, a union victory. Um, <laughs> that, that was at my, you know, at the Hilton Hotel. That, that was a big moment um, because it was like really like the first union victory. It showed what collective action could could win and get. And from that point on, people had a certain confidence Um that they could win. And, you know, and we brought that into to our organizing drive as well. So we learned all of these like little lessons, um, you know, from each other as we, as we were going through the fight. Yeah. Did the company put special focus on the, uh, the leadership of the organizing committee? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so t- tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. They, they spread all sorts of rumors um, around that we were, you know, we were getting paid by the union to, to do this, that um, we were just spies, that yeah. you know, we weren't really in it for the best interest of the workers. Um, they claimed um, Lupe, who was a 22-year banquet veteran at the Hilton, 
um, and a, an amazing leader there. They claim that she was getting paid by the union and, and was, you know, was a spy and all this sort of stuff. And the workers knew they're like, that's Lupe from she's been here for 22 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we know <laughs> we know who she is, you know. And uh, and so they, they at times they would put their foot in their mouth because, uh, you know, the lies that they were making up were, were so blatantly obvious. But at other times, you know, like the rumors, uh, you know, about um, spying and this sort of stuff where, you know, pe- people did start to it, it did have an in the Hilton. It didn't have an effect because they had caught them off guard completely. And just like I said, just really destroyed that, yeah. <laughs> that anti-union campaign. But at our hotel, because they had a year to, to prepare for it, they were a little more uh, cautious and a little more careful and, and really knew how to like uh, try to navigate it. So there were people, you know, on our committee who uh, who either almost got flipped or got flipped. And it was a constant struggle to keep them close to us. And one of the ways that we did that was every day, you know, we had people wearing buttons union buttons and if we saw someone take off the union button house visit uh that day we're going to their house and we're gonna have a conversation and get that button back Uh, on so that they could show that there's union you know union support in the hotel we did face petitions with 90 95 workers on a big face petition and we'd go and do an action and present that to the company so everything was about showing that it wasn't an outside force coming in to make this change it was the workers in this hotel that were trying to you know trying to change our lives that's awesome. That is awesome. So this went on for four months, you said? So uh, four weeks. Okay, four yeah. weeks. Yeah, we had four. That's way better than yeah. four months. Four months would have been, we, we, we might have lost if, yeah. if it was four months. Um, yeah. And that's what they want to make it. Uh, they sure. they want to have that time. Um, but for four weeks, the, the go, they go, after you file for a union election, the government determines, or the NLRB determines, uh, how long you can have to try to tell the workers the truth about the union or try to turn them around. And uh, they gave us the maximum time, which was which was four weeks. That's amazing to me that that's a thing, yeah. right? The workers should have the right to just vote. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked by that. It, that. It's it's a really infantilizing thing, right? It's like, oh, you guys don't know what you're doing. You're here, you little kids, you know, and that's how they view like the mostly immigrant workers and, and mostly women, too, who yep. led this campaign. I, I want to make that clear, like women workers who had kids who would bring we'd, we'd made space for kids at the union hall, like to be able to do child care. Um, people volunteered to do child care because they were coming from working three jobs taking the train with their kids or grandkids in tow and they were leading this effort and the company thinks that they're children and they treated us like children until they learned their lesson the day we won our vote that's amazing they're heroes yeah absolutely that's awesome so when did the vote happen so the vote happened sometime mid-december um, and like I said, the, the first vote with the, the Hilton was just a blowout. It was one Oh five to five, uh, which is an incredible, incredible yeah, that victory. Is incredible. Um, and then in our hotel, because the anti-union campaign had so much time to work, you know, and I'll say too, uh, even before the actual union drive really was cooking, 
the company started doing employee appreciation days. They started bringing yeah. in ice cream trucks and <laughs> all sorts of stuff that, you know, try to make it You don't need good. an ice cream. Yeah. Here's some sorbet. Yeah. It's literally, if you've seen that meme where, like, the boss offering pizza instead of a way yeah, raise. It's yeah, it's real. It's, it's, it's real. The and, same old tactics. Yeah. You know, and um, they promised people, you know, all sorts of stuff. Promised to pay for people's college tuition, all, all this sort of stuff. And so when we got to our vote, we had been through this huge fight with the anti-union campaign they've tried all the the tactics of winning people over and the vote was still a big win um but it was 69 to 32 and had they had a couple more weeks uh, that vote would have even been closer but it was a testament to the organizing the level of organizing that we did the committee the strength of the committee and the commitment that when we looked across the table when we first started and we committed to each other that okay one of us two of us a bunch of us may get fired but we're going to go through this and we're going to support each other and do that when we made that commitment that vote of 69 to 32 was a huge victory and then the difficult work began. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So talk about that. So you get the vote, right? That's really exciting. And and then the balloon gets popped, right? Because you realize you got to go in now and get a contract. Yes. And um, and that that was a big slap in the face. And we, we saw it at the other hotels, so we kind of knew what it was. But when you're actually in the contract fight, it's for a, for a new shop, it's it's a lot different because there's no co- that's that's a thing that like is amazing about being in local 1150 is that there's a culture of the union in the shop. It's just, it's there. And I I can't really exactly put it into words, uh, but when you're in a a non-union shop and it goes union, you you know the difference. Like I I walk in and I feel like, it's like you can breathe freely, you know? And when you're fighting for a contract and there's no union culture, you have to develop it and build it yourself. And, And that's very difficult. Um, as we were leading the, the four weeks that we were in the fight, we had meetings every week with our coworkers in each department. So the front desk, we organized, we were really strong. We would come in every week, we'd meet as the front desk and we would lay out the demands that we wanted for the contract. And we had some help from union organizers, but by and large, it was us that were shaping the, the contract demands. And then someone would write it up in the legalese and for, formalize yep. it. Yeah. Um, when we got into negotiations, it was like we were really fighting for demands that we had had written up. And we, we you know, the sky was the limit. We, we really put everything that we, we wanted to see change and yep. even including things like environmental issues. Right. Like we looked at we said we want the company to partner with the Yale School of Forestry. Uh, an environment to study the environmental impacts of the hotel, and uh, and and this benefits you because if you look at the high water marks as as the as if Stanford ever floods, it's going to be right at the doorstep of the hotel. So this would benefit you. So we we went far. That was it, your proposal, wasn't it? it <laughs> <laughs> I, I supported it, and I but it wasn't my exact proposal. Okay, um, but it, uh, I was very happy to to see that that was brought up. And another thing was like you know, train passes, paying for train passes for our coworkers to get, to get to work. Um, you know, this type of stuff, we, we, we tried to be really almost visionary with what, with what we were putting into the contract and we didn't win, we didn't win most of it, but it was more of like, you know, what, what can we fight for? What in in the future, as we develop this, you know, uh, this union, um, and we had a, uh, and as we did those, created those demands, each department voted on who was going to represent them, 
at the negotiating table. So we had the organizers for the union. There was three generally union staff who were in the negotiations. And then we had a committee of 16 of our coworkers who met weekly and uh, would go over the proposals, would refine things. Uh, and generally, we, you know, we kind of sat quietly while we were waiting for the, the sides to, and, and we would like kind of interject and just emphasize the, the points that were, were being made with our own lived experiences. Yep. So, so how long did it take you guys to get to the point where you got your contract and voted? Yeah, good, good question. It took a year, which seems like a long time, but for a new contract, that the average is like I think a year and a half or two years. It's, yeah. it's it might long. Even be more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we so it felt like uh, ages, but it was actually a short period of time. And in that process, we did some incredible things. Like we did actions regularly to push around the shop to to push for our demands. We did one where we threw nickels and dimes at the at the company lawyer and said, "Stop nickel and diming us." And we, <laughs> and, uh, I like that. <laughs> we had like twenty workers march in and and you know put dimes and nickels on the table and said, stop That's nickels awesome. and dimes. Here, here's some money, but you know, we'll, we'll contribute to it. And, um, you know, we did things like that. It was right around the time that stop and shop went on strike. And we found out that there were some scabs staying in our hotel. So we went into negotiations that day and we said, we're not continuing with negotiations until you remove any scabs from this hotel. And, um, and at that same meeting, we passed a resolution to support the stop and shop strike. And we all joined the picket lines after, um, after, after that, uh, negotiation That's session. Cool. So we did That's a lot awesome. of really cool stuff. And this was like really for me, like very formative and, de- you know, helping develop my, my, my union consciousness and, uh, stuff that we were pushing for. And, um, you know, and basically it was like, you know, if we could imagine it and drive it forward, we could, we could do it, you yeah. know? So you, you're a foot soldier in this organizing campaign. Um, you were involved with negotiations or no? Yes. Yeah, I was on the committee. Okay, so you're on the negotiating committee. You win a contract, and then you quit and you come to Sikorsky Aircraft. <laughs> yeah, I was out of there. No. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this, too. Like, um, we we all we had this volunteer organizing committee and it was a very like democratic process like every every nothing was like really dictated to us we had people making suggestions and and whatnot but we all participated in the discussion and, and shaping things and that was like uh, that was that was really powerful um, but yeah after the after we won the contract uh, it was 2020 December or I think it was December or January it was Jan- January of January of 2020 so. Okay couple months before covid yep uh we get our contract um some people are happy some people are not you know it's not the contract that we we dreamed of but it was a good contract it secured our wages my i'll say so when we started this discussion my wages were at 13 dollars an hour uh after we won the union my wages had gone up to 17 dollars an hour nice. which yeah. is a, a good jump and i and we won part of that prior as soon as the hilton had organized the company gave us a two dollar raise oh wow to try to turn us around and then yeah. we won additional wage increases after that um but then we're in 2020 COVID hits and we're all immediately laid off sure. which wouldn't have been the end of the story but for me uh, the decision was made for me. Our, our hotel ended up closing in that process, uh, and, and it, you know, um, it was sad because we had we had fought so hard. But the the com- the problem with the hotels is that they can buy and sell hotels. Uh, you know, these multi billion dollar conglomerates have, you know, uh, portfolios with several hotels, yep. and they buy and sell them. And we had great successorship language in the hotel, but it wasn't clear 
if they were going to turn it into office buildings or whatever. So um, at that point, I said, you know, it's we're COVID. I'm laid off. I, I got to find you know, another line of work that is going to, you know, sustain me and yep. mm-hmm. went into manufacturing. Um, but I will say that before that, even though we were laid off, we all still kept meeting. All three union hotels kept meeting, kept discussing like how we were going to win. Um, like the company cut our health care during COVID, like we got laid off and then they cut our health care immediately. Yeah. And so we kept pushing Crazy. the company. Um, when we found out that it was closing, you know, obviously we thought we were going to get some sort of severance package. They didn't want to give us any severance package and we won a little bit for the most senior workers, but it took a fight just to to get that. So we kept, or it wasn't like we just, you know, wiped our hands of it and gave up. We kept fighting until the last moment. And I think that's, you know, and, and still to this day, the Hilton is, is organized. They just got their second contract. The Hyatt is, is still organized. The, they just organized the graduate hotel in New Haven, um, the Omni. So there's, there's still, you know, it's still going on. The fight, the fight continues. Yep. Um, but for me, the, the decision was basically made, made for me. Sure. Um, and, uh, I'm happy to be here there now. <laughs> yeah. You landed pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say so. Um, well, Hutch, this has been an amazing conversation, yeah, it really right? I, it's been really interesting for me. Um, you know, a 35-year union guy, I've never been involved in organizing. Um, you know, I've learned a lot about it, but I don't think I've ever learned more than I learned today. So so I really appreciate you coming in and, and talking to us about it. It's been it's been incredibly informative. Oh, this has been a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate it. It was you know, great, great to get to talk about this again. We're definitely going to have you back on again because I know that there's more more you have to say about other subjects so um, we're, we're gonna do that we're gonna bring you back on and talk about some other stuff awesome that'd be great thanks for being here man thank you all right so as usual Vinny's gonna talk about what's going on out there in the labor movement so Vinny what do we got so uh, nurses at Wyndham uh, Hospital in Willimantic launched a strike on Thursday the 20 the 22nd and it lasted until Saturday the 24th um, a two-day strike that's boy. That's Today, desirable. Labor, a- labor <laughs> action. They sent a letter to the hospital with their intention on September twelfth. Um, the hospital, rather than recognizing its work, uh, workforce by agreeing that the common sense solution, uh, the change lures have refused a fair wage increases and pushed for higher employee uh, health insurance costs. And nice. Spices that strike was. What else? Okay, so we're heading in. It looks like we might be heading into another Striketober now in 2022. Where Let's hope so. You're seeing a lot of major corporations, Starbucks, Amazon, Apple, Chipotle, Trader Joe's, Google, REI, and Verizon having uh, labor action going on in uh, surge in organizing. Union election pe- uh, petitions have increased by 58% in the first three quarters of the fiscal year of 2022 compared to 2021. Wow. Public support for unions is at its highest point since 1965, and a Gallup poll were at 71% approval in the United States. Another wow. That's pretty impressive. And again, you know, we've talked about this before. I just hope that we get to the place where that translates into higher numbers, right? Absolutely. The, the support is there, uh, but, but we need people to start to join unions and, and form unions. In the last month, thousands of healthcare workers have gone on strike. Educators have gone on strike to, for understaffing, low pay, and poor conditions for patients and students. Uh, some of the largest strikes in, in recent weeks was 15,000 nurses who went on a strike, a three-day strike in Minnesota. 
1,100 worker, uh, timber workers in Oregon and Washington. Over 4,500 teachers in Columbus, Ohio went on strike. More than 6,000 teachers and staff in Seattle went on strike. 2,000 mental health care workers in California went on strike. And 1,200 casting plant workers in Stellantis, Indiana went on strike. Wow. You know, it comes to mind our members a lot of times hold the line for quality, and they use the union to protect them. Um, same thing happens whether it's teachers and the teaching they provide our kids. They go on strike to protect those things. And the nurses more so. They're understaffed so badly. And it leads to bad outcomes for patients. So it's yep. in everybody's interest when these people go out on strike to support Absolutely. them and get better education, get better health care. Amen. So as always, we're going to end the episode with a labor quote. And I'm looking at our notes your quote today is from probably my favorite guy in labor history, Samuel uh-huh. Samuel Gompers. Um, um, you know, people people are sports fans. I'm a labor fan. I love yeah. Samuel Gompers. I'm yeah. a big fan. Uh, so, um, so what do you got? So he was uh, lo- uh, the first and longest serving president of the American Federation of Labor. And I got a couple quotes from him. First one, I think, goes good with our, our show today. The trade union uh, movement represents the organized economic power of the workers. It is in reality the most potent and the most direct social insurance the workers can establish. Nice. And the second one is, show me a country that has no strikes, and I'll show you a country in which there is no liberty. Yeah, nice. So um, that's not to we we're, we talk about strikes, right? Uh, the, the strike is is our weapon, yeah. Right, it's the weapon that we have. Uh, I say it all the time. It's uh, the unions are like armies that have no guns, but they have a nuclear bomb. So you know the strike is is a powerful weapon, and it's our only weapon. So I think it needs to be used. I think it needs Absolutely. to be used with some respect, but I think it needs to be used. So um, good that we're talking about that going into negotiations. Right to be aware of the fact that we are packing when we go into negotiations. Um, what do we got for upcoming events? Anything? No real events coming up. We've got our membership meetings in October. The Connecticut meeting will be on October 19th. Alabama and PACS will be on October 25th. And West Palm Beach will be on October 27th. And real quick, just want to shout out everybody down in Florida. Hoping you guys are doing all right down there with yeah. the uh, storm coming through. Yep. So, so let's talk before we close out, uh, that membership meeting on October 19th in Connecticut will take place the day after negotiations kick off. We're kicking off on, on October 18th. So that may affect the podcast. I just, I, I want to make sure everybody understands that, that that's just days away at this point. And, um, we're going to be negotiating for a good solid two to two and a half months. So, uh, just understand that we may or may not be postponing episodes of the podcast. We're going to do our best sure. to bring you some material. We will not be using this podcast to update you on negotiations because there's a pretty lengthy editing process that'll that'll render those updates um, no longer current, right? Yeah. So, so we're going to update you through the website, through the app. Please, if you haven't downloaded our app, please go um, to the appropriate store and download that app for free and, and get yourself signed up up for that so that you can get our updates on negotiations or go to our website at teamsters1150.org and make sure you're keeping up to date on what's going on in negotiations. So as always, uh, we appreciate everybody listening. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for following us. If you're not following us, 
Shame on you. Go right now to Podbean and follow the 10 to 12 podcast. Uh, remember to email us. Tell us what you like about the podcast. Tell us what you hate about the podcast, but tell us something. Email us at comms at teamsters1150.org. That's C-O-M-M-S at teamsters1150.org. And until next time, I'm Stephen French. I'm Benny Kaitsi. And I'm Jason Shoemaker. We'll see you next time. Thank you.